Well, good morning, ARC, and welcome to our guest. I'm Pastor Dennis, one of the four pastors here at Anacostia River Church, and I'm so glad that you visitors have come in the middle of our series on the fear of the Lord. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the Bible and Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. So you can turn there with me. We're going to consider today the question, do you have a fear of man? Do you have a fear of man? Some of you right off the break may be saying, yes, that's been a stumbling block in my life. It's truly been a stronghold on me that has prevented me from serving and worshiping the Lord in the way that I should. And others may be hearing this term for the very first time and don't even realize that there are people-pleasing tendencies that are popping up that is there has borne bad fruit on their lives. So whether you know or you don't know about this term, we can all grow together in our understanding and application of God's truth. So in that, we're going to pray to that end. Let's look to the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my Redeemer, and whom I trust and whom I fear. And you, God, open our eyes to behold the marvelous truth from your word. Lord, that you would give us ears of faith to hear and a heart that would have a deeper love and affection towards Christ our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So in Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he asks a number of questions to help us diagnose this idea of the fear of man. So I'm going to run through some of those questions just so that we can check those out. You can kind of do a diagnostic check for yourself. Question one is, have you ever struggled with fear pressure? A lot of times we think about this as children, but even as adults, we can think of ways in which we have given into peer pressure. Even this week, at work with your boss or at home, thinking about this pressure to be the perfect spouse, the pressure to have perfect children, perfect home, you feel that you may be exposed as a phony or fake if you either do or don't do something. The sense of being exposed, even if you have all the credentials that the world would deem as successful, the education, the degree, the job, are you still overly concerned with the perceptions of others? How about this? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in the eyes of other people? Are you jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do they have this kind of control, this power over your life? You know, right? Are they making you crazy? Do you avoid certain people? Are your diets or obsession with physical fitness, even when they appear under the guise of health, is it really geared towards impressing others primarily? Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because of what others might think? How are you with being overcommitted? You find that it's hard to say no, even when wisdom clearly shows that you should. These are all expressions of the fear of man. And to be fair, these things are not sinful in themselves, but when pleasing man takes center stage over pleasing God, we find ourselves in a trap. So the wisdom literature of the Bible was written just for all these types of issues. 
And Proverbs especially has something to say. Right in Proverbs, I love Proverbs, right? At the beginning, it gives you its purpose statement, right? If you've never read it before, if it's been a while, I encourage you to dig into this book. So look what Proverbs has to say about Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wow. We need this book. The block needs this book. Our nation needs this book. The world needs this book. And the majority of these Proverbs was written by Solomon, who was considered one of the wisest men who ever lived. God gave him this wisdom. So this wisdom literature is different from the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. It's different from prophecy. It's different from the historical narrative, the Gospels and the epistles. But still, it's God's holy and inspired word. Amen. Proverbs means to be like the book of comparisons. They have great illustrations and highlight and teach the real deal about living a wise life. The overarching theme of the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in our passage today, we have this anti-thematic parallel, which is just a fancy way of saying it's the second line of this particular proverb that's a contrast to the first line. Now, why would the author do that? The reason is the author desires for us to clearly see the point. This is the main idea that the fear of man is a snare, but trusting God is safe. So let's look at the text together. Proverbs 29, verse 25. It says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So, three points here. The fear of man is a trap. See that in verse 25a. Trusting God leads to safety. 25b. And then I have a word of warning and a word of encouragement found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Okay, so first we see that the fear of man leads to a snare, which is a trap. See that in verse 25a. And like any good trap, the goal is to take you captive and to camouflage the device, making it hard to discern. That's what a good trap does. And this is precisely how the fear of man works. This is the type of fear that deals with torment. It brings bondage causes distress. It creates difficulties in your life. Its goal is to enslave you and take you captive to be men pleasers and to live for the applause of others. Lord, help us. Not only takes us captive, but it's also camouflage. The trap of fearing man is camouflage in three ways. Ed Welch in his book points these out that one is shame, two is rejection, and three is harm. I think he's right. So when you think about shame, definition, it's fear that we will be exposed, that somehow, in some way, you will not measure up to other people's expectations. This is a trap. It's been the enemy's tactic from the very beginning to focus on ourselves and take our focus off of God. And after the enemy tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell, the very next result was they felt ashamed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 
says that the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden full of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They now were ashamed of each other and hid from God. And we do the same thing. It's in our nature. We don't want to be exposed. You see it played out in the block. Family, we also see that played out in the church. Have you ever had a fresh wound from someone who may hack you on the basketball court? No names, Richard. <laughs> but when you first get that cup, you want, you want to protect it. You want to guard it because it hurts. But if it's not addressed properly, it becomes a festering hot mess that becomes infected because it was exposed. This is what we see with violence on the block today. At its core, it's an issue of the fear of man and lack of the fear of God. Think about it. If someone is shamed from being dissed or disrespected, right? They're like, yo, that can lead to some extreme violence. James Gilligan in his book on preventing violence, he says the most potent stimulus of aggression and violence, and the one that is most reliable in eliciting this response of violence is not the frustration per se, but rather insult and humiliation. In other words, the most effective way to provoke someone to violence is to insult him, to shame them, to expose them. Hurting people hurt people. To be disrespected is a violation that comes with severe and often life-threatening consequences. Unfortunately, it's not just the neighborhood, but the trap of being exposed is in the church. People within the body are hurting. They've experienced real pain, real sorrow. The Lord has set up a community called his church in order to love one another, encourage one another, and build each other up. I love how Larry Craig says in his book, The Spiritual Community, describing the church, it's a safe place to hit rock bottom. It's a safe place to hit rock bottom. Have you experienced this type of community before? Yes, we ought to initiate check-ins. Yes, we ought to initiate praying for one another. The community family is really a two-way street. Brothers and sisters, don't let the fear of being exposed and shamed cause isolation and lack of transparency with what you're struggling with. He has placed us in a family for our benefit. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, talking about our new status in Christ and within the body, he says, so then, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Those to your left and your right, those in front of you and back of you, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And not pressing into fellowship with each other causes us to miss out on the means of grace in which God has provided for his body. In Romans chapter 12, 10 to 13, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slowful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit in serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's within this context that we should be open and honest with one another. It's a two-way street. Reaching out, reaching in, reaching around. If our fear of man has cause us 
fear of being exposed or shamed. Really, what we're doing is setting, up, setting ourselves up to be in a trap of captivity. So we take pornography, for example. I want you to know that there's hope for those who are trapped in this. But the biggest trap is to suffer in silence because of shame of what others might think of you. It's hope. But some people put up walls to protect themselves so no one can get close enough to get in. The family, please hear me. What happens is it's also difficult to get out of those walls. And if community is good and right, then isolation is wrong. Sin thrives in the darkness and isolation. And in its place, we end up creating a fantasy world to indulge in pleasures. We're at a place where pornography or any pet sin for that matter has become an idol in your life. Is it a stronghold in your life where you feel like you have no community to turn to? Are you in some way not believing the goodness or the power of God to deliver you from this? I visited a sheep farm about a year and a half ago in Pennsylvania. So white sheep, black sheep, big sheep, little sheep, there's all kinds of sheep. But one of those sheep stood out. It was one that walked with a limp. And I remember talking to the shepherd and asking him, like, yo, what happened to him? He said he got injured, but the best thing for a wounded sheep is to stay close to the fold. It aids in their recovery and serves as protection. I said, yo, you preaching right now. You preaching right now. But he told me within the fold, they're encouraged to continue in their regular routines that would otherwise be difficult and tedious, but they'll be okay if they stay in the flow of the flock. Because if you isolate, that's lamb chops for the good. Lamb chops for the good. So it's no wonder God refers to us as sheep. We are his precious sheep. And his word lovingly warns us, even this morning. Fear of man means a trap. It is shame and fear of exposure. Don't let that stop you from knowing or being known by one another. So, by way of application, at the church today, find someone. Someone that's been on your mind, it's been on your heart. Yep, that person think about right in that, right? Even if they're not here, give them a call. What I want you to do is encourage them. Spur them on to love and good works as the Bible has called us to do. Ask them, how can I serve you? Figure out ways to conspire to outdo one another in honoring one another. I've seen you all in action with this. I've seen you at baby showers. I've also seen you all at funerals. So you were, people were sick and you know, people recovering from surgery. Good, bad, difficult times in life. I've literally seen some of you conspire to buy other people's cars. Like, who does it, right? Mm-hmm. People of God. Come on. Amen. People. But the commonality was the need was known. The need was known and community responded. Mm-hmm. So beware of the trap of the fear of man that is camouflage of shame. And number two, beware of the fear of man camouflage as the fear of rejection. Rejection. This comes from the desire for acceptance trying to keep up with the Joneses. Rather than saying, I am what I am by God's grace, what we do is we measure ourselves by one another and compare ourselves with one another. And the scriptures say when we do that, we lack understanding. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. In other words, we're being foolish. 
It's an all-consuming, all-exhausting, overwhelming desire for approval. And this pretty much describes social media today, if you really think about it. And for some, social media is not just a trap for acceptance or approval, but it's already enslaved you. And how do I know that? Well, I don't. But try and break the shackles from social media for a month. It can be a useful servant, but a cruel master. There's nothing new under the sun. This was the same trap 2,000 years ago that we see in John chapter 12, verse 42 to 43. And this is really one of the saddest statements in the gospel. It's when many of the Jewish leaders during this time, they've seen Jesus' life, they heard his message, and they literally believed in Jesus, but they would not publicly confess Jesus. They didn't do this before others because of the fear of man in seeking their approval and acceptance. John chapter 12, 42, 43, it says, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So that, purpose quote, they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Amen. The synagogue literally means a place of gathering, people, the assembly. It was the hub of the Jewish social life. It wasn't just the reading and interpreting of the scripture, but you had everything from political meetings to fellowship meals at the synagogue. It was a communal institution in that day. And if they had publicly confessed Christ, they would have jeopardized being excommunicated, unfriended, unfollowed. And John uncovers the truth of the matter. He gets to the bottom line that they love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. They were people pleasers rather than God. And in John's day, there would have been those who were attempting to follow Jesus in a secret way. And these words from John would have been a sort of rebuke for some. But it would have challenged everyone to examine whether they're serving their own glory or God's glory. How does that land for you today? How does man's approval keep you from following Jesus in public? How's your witness at work? your neighbors, with your family. I remember when I worked as a contractor for the government, every location I went to, somehow, some way, I would end up sitting next to the most hardcore atheists <laughs> all the time. One who hated God, who was loud about it, and who was very opinionated. Never failed. I mean, every conversation we tell my baseball, basketball, the weather, somehow it get around to debating the non-existence of God. Okay. And now, no way am I the hero of this story, right? Because truth be told, I just. But I came to a place where it didn't matter what they thought. Where it didn't matter if they rejected me. The one thing they wasn't going to do was keep talking bad about me. So I spoke up and I figured one of two things would happen. One, either they would get saved and leave me alone. <laughs> or they would get so tired of me talking about Jesus and leave me alone. Either way, I'm good. God is glorified. Maybe not the best motivation for evangelism, but that's where I was at the time. But it wasn't until years later that I heard one of them came to faith. And I had lunch with him and mentioned, and talked with me and said, man, I know it seemed like I wasn't listening. It seemed like your words weren't landing. Um, but what you said impacted me. Great. So could it be in God's providence that you sit next to that particular culture? 
or that you live on that particular block? I think so. Acts 17 talks about that. It says he made from one man every nation of mankind that live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, that he's actually not far from each of us. So people are blinded by their sin. And as ambassadors, as living epistles, we either confirm or deny what they think they're Christian. Now, rejection hurts. It does not feel good. And most likely there will be some sort of social repercussion of people pleasing, fear of rejection, and secret faith is a trap. Now, there is a distinction between appropriate desire to please others and simple people pleasing. Just want to be clear on that. So if you're married, married folks, it is good and right for you to seek to please your spouse. There's different reasons and seasons that you should seek to please others. My wife, Tasha, who we just celebrated 20 years of marriage. Amen. Our relationship with one another supersedes all other earthly relationships, as it rightly should. I love my parents. Um, in fact, my mom is here holding it down with us today. Praise God for this moment. Love my siblings, love my friends. The marriage is about leaving behind. This means leaving behind parents' traditions, activities, customs, approval from your parents are no longer the primary concern. Now, let's be clear. It doesn't mean that you disregard them uh, or their advice, but you all are now a new family unit. To your spouse. So singles, count up the cost. Count up the cost. Now you can be focused on how you may please the Lord, but the married Christian must focus not only on pleasing the Lord, but also pleasing the spouse. Christ is first, but the scriptures inform us that our interests are divided. Part of that is seeking ways to please our spouse. Another is respecting our parents. Respecting and pleasing our parents is not only appropriate, but it's commanded in Scripture. Man, it's not easy, especially with imperfect, sinful, and broken people. But it is God. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases not just them, but it pleases the Lord. So there are reasons and seasons where people pleasing is an honorable thing, but on the flip side of the coin, your spouse, your parent, the supervisor at work requires that you do something contrary to what God has commanded, then we must obey God in that way. So beware of the trap of the fear of man that is camouflaged as shame, camouflaged as rejection, and lastly, camouflaged as a threat. So we fear man because they have this potential to threaten us. Physical violence can make us prone to fear of man. Abraham, a man of faith, perfect example. He feared physical violence at the hand of Pharaoh. And what did he do? He decided to lie about his wife, Sarah. Genesis 12, 11 to 13. When Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are beautiful in appearance. Start off real good. Didn't you? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. And it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This was not a stand-up move by Abraham. And it did not go well with him lying. But the Bible's honest about our heroes. 
they show them with clay feet. Abraham, Abram feared man. And the interesting thing is, he hadn't even experienced any physical violence from Pharaoh. But the fear of potential violence, the perception of danger, is what caused him to fear. And isn't that what most people struggle with? The potential of violence to the point that it grips us, that it cripples us, it prevents us from properly loving God and loving people. It's really rooted in worry and anxiety. And worry by definition is literally to have a divided mind. It's where it's been given first priority in our thoughts where you no longer see God as primary and trusting in him alone. This happened to the Israelites who feared the report of the spies when they returned from Canaan, Numbers 13. Ten of the 12 spies came back fearing the potential for physical harm from others, leading them to choose not to trust the Lord. How are you doing? For children, this could mean not giving you to care for but the so-called friends pushing you to do things that you know aren't right. Real friends don't threaten you. Real friends encourage you to Jesus. Amen. Some of you all have been thinking about taking your first mission trip or coming out on the block for evangelism. And others have thought about moving east of the river or being more present in your neighborhood. Ask yourself, am I allowing some potential threat to keep me from trusting God? Am I allowing fear to keep me from loving my neighbor as Christ commanded? So we see the fear of man leads to a trap. Like any good trap, the goal is to take you captive and to camouflage itself with shame, rejection, and potential fear. Before we move on to the B portion of this, um, just a pastoral reflection. So as you can see, the fear of man is a common issue. It's a blind spot in many people's lives because it can be so broad. And that's why the scripture calls it a snare or a trap. And of course, before the sermon impacts the people that is being preached to, it impacts the preacher first. Sometimes things get open and exposed so that you can come to a place where you cry out to God in desperation that we would see him rightly. Teach me to fear you more than me. As we go on in the sanctification process together, God sanctifies by your word, your word is true. As we do this together and as a family, rather than look at the topic of the fear of man as this high and lofty concept, I want to encourage you to find a way to take a more manageable course of action to look for ways to grow daily in this fear of the Lord. And we can grow daily in this fear, right? When we first opened up the series, we talked about a spectrum from first being afraid of the Lord, all the way up to having the true worship and honor and reverence for Him. We can grow in this field. So trust that the Lord will take His word, trust that He'll make it effective in your life by His Spirit, and that in due time, we will grow in the fear of the Lord. One of those ways that we can do that is to pray and ask the Lord, right? And to patiently wait upon Him because He will surely do it. Amen? Amen. There's hope. Apostle Peter is a great example of that hope and grace in growing in the fear of the Lord. You see, first Peter denying Christ at his trial because he feared the potential threat of man. And yet we see that this same man would encourage Christians not to fear physical threats. It's amazing how God can use the very same thing that he delivered you from 
in order to help somebody else. In 1 Peter 3, 13, uh, 15, he says, now who is there to harm you? This is Peter, same one who denied Christ. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord. So what are we believing about God? About his faithfulness, about his love, his purposes, his power, his passion, his gospel mission. So now if we look at the B portion of Proverbs 25, 29, 25, it says that the fear of man lays a trap. But the contrast is whoever puts his trust in the Lord will be saved. So in order to trust in the Lord, two things are essential. First, we must confidently believe that God is able, willing, and ready to care for us. And number two, have an eternal perspective. Believe that he's willing, ready, and able to care for us. And two, have an eternal perspective. So faith and perspective. Think of Joseph, a young man put in charge of his master's house. Minding his own business. His master's wife wanted to entice him. So Joseph had a decision to make. Am I going to trust and honor God or indulge in the pleasures of a fleeting moment? And Joseph's response was, how can I do this thing in sin against God? He was determined, despite the daily pressures. In Genesis 39, it says that her advances were repeated day after day. Temptation is not a part-time experience for the believer. Like Joseph, we have to ask, are we going to please man, please self, or please God? He had a proper fear of the Lord. The one who knows all and sees all and we must give an account to. He resolved to say, how can I do this and sin against God? We may be thinking that, well, Joseph, it didn't turn out all that great, right? How is he safe though? He ends up falsely accused and then thrown in jail as a result of trusting the Lord. And that's right. There may be some of you here today that feel like, man, I've been trusting the Lord, and it seems like temptations is all I experience. But remember, trust requires faith and perspective. So let me remind you that Joseph was now safe in prison from Potiphar's wife and her advances. And it was far better for him to be in jail with a clear conscience and a free sin. And sometimes the best fight is the fight we don't have to fight at all. Amen. Remember, Joseph ran, right? That temptation. He ran. And it wasn't just a cool little job. Nah, he was like Essie on the track and field. She was <laughs> determined and decisive, right? He ran because he had a proper understanding of fear, proper understanding of the fear of the Lord, because he recognizes his sin is first and foremost against God. Not to mention, that wasn't the end of the story. God used Joseph powerfully where in the end he can say what was meant for evil, God meant for good. The Lord is doing hundreds, thousands of different things, hundreds of thousands of different things that we know not of. Trust in the Lord. As a Christian, these types of temptations are common to man. God is able to provide a way of escape or to keep us safe. So now we come to the word about the safety of the Lord. Whoever puts his trust in the Lord is safe. So in Hebrew, it paints this incredible word picture of being set on high. 
meaning lifted up upon a high rock, one that is firm and sure, a high tower which is impregnable and immovable. This is the safety that is meant in the psalmist in Psalm 27 that our brother Christian read for us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? To trust in him as your safety, as your fortress, as your stronghold is to rightly fear him above all else. Mm-hmm. And for those in the middle of some sort of affliction right now and finding it hard to see God's goodness and a way into the safety of his stronghold, my prayer is that the fall would clear that you would see that your suffering, your suffering is not in vain. That is not the case of the testimony for the Christian. He uses suffering to conform us, to look more and more like Jesus. He's doing a sanctifying work in Romans 8, 28. And through suffering, he's reminding us that this is not our home. Luke 6, 22 to 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. But behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. He's using your suffering to encourage other believers through your testimony. And not only after the storm, but in the middle of it. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, that because of his imprisonment, other Christians who have watched and observed his suffering have far more courage now to speak the word of God without fear. Amen. You could be using your suffering to bring you to a place of repentance. Is he using your suffering, your affliction, or even tragedy to bring you to a place of repentance? You remember when the Tower of Ceylon fell and killed 18 people in Luke chapter 13? Jesus said in verse 5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In other words, you never know when it's your time to go. But the important question is, even today, is it well with your soul? Lastly, God uses suffering to teach us to trust him and to remain faithful. Though tested by fire, may we be found to result in the praise, the glory, the honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. May we not focus on present circumstances, but may our desire to hear, well done. Thy good and faithful servant supersede all else. Brothers and sisters, the truth is in this life we will suffer for not giving into the fear of man. But whoever puts their trust in the Lord is safe. Safe from men. Safe from the fear of man. From traps of sin and temptation. The Lord is in it with you or he will protect you from it. Even hell itself. We trust him. It's the last point. The Lord turned with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Just to set context for you, Jesus is sending out 12 of his disciples on a short-term uh, mission trip, if you will. He's giving them a typical mission trip uh, instructions on what to take, where to go. But then his presentation takes a little twist as he informs them of what to expect. He says, oh yeah, by the way, I'll be sending you out as sheep among wolves. There will be men who will drag you to the courts and others who will flog you in the synagogues. They hate me, but they hate you. And then we get to verse 28 of chapter 10. 
Do not fear those who can kill the body, Jesus speaking, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. And you may be saying, well, Jesus, that's not too encouraging. <laughs> what it is, fam, and here's why. Here Jesus gives us the remedy to overcome the fear of man. Here's the answer to life's test. We must fight fear with fear. Overcome the fear of man with the fear of God. There's a warning and an encouragement. The warning, hell is a fearful place. And it is the destiny of those who reject Jesus. It will be a dreadful place. The most fearful thing you face on earth is but a type and shadow of the reality of hell. The prophet Ezekiel chapter 21, 7 describes the day of judgment as a day when every heart will be your hands will be feeble and every spirit will faint and knees will be weak as water in the presence of God. Jesus says this is the one who should be feared, the one that can destroy both soul and body in heaven. For those who are not Christians, I want to call you to make the switch from sinful fear of God to a right fear of God today. God has provided a way of escape. God has provided a way of escape, a way from being tormented from the fear of man and what others may think, say, or do to trusting in the safe arms of the Savior, away from the fear of the wrath to come, away to the love of the Father who sent his one and only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place and for our sins. And three days rise from the world. Now Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, that way of salvation is available for all who will repent and turn from sin and turn and trust in Jesus. Is that you today? Please, sir, man, boy, girl, that is you. Make that a priority today to talk to someone before you leave. To the utmost, Jesus saves. And his blood is able to cleanse us from all our sins. Encouragement to the Christian. Those who are facing persecution or whatever level, affliction from the world, from the evil one, whether here or abroad, at best, man can only destroy the body, but they can never destroy the soul. What can you do with a Christian who has this type of mindset? Throughout history, missionaries and martyrs for the faith have stood on this reality. They cannot destroy the soul. Tradition as passed on by the early church historian Eusebius tells us that Peter, who feared man and then learned the fear of the Lord, told those who were preparing to execute him by crucifixion that he wanted to be crucified upside down instead because he thought himself not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Jesus also prophesied about this Peter's death in John 21, verse 18 and 19. He said, truly, truly to Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, will show by what kind of death 
was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. This is how you're going to die. Still, follow me. Why? Because man can kill the body, but not the soul. Simon Peter went from man who feared arrest and denied even knowing Christ to one who would follow the Lord literally to the cross. It was Jesus that strengthened Peter and enabled him to stand for him, even when it meant the loss of his own life. May our great God and Savior do the same for us. Our fear of God will deliver us from the fear of man. Our fear of God will deliver us from the fear of death. Lastly, God is glorified and we find comfort. Here a man lays a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Amen. Father, help us not to be afraid of men's faces, but to be convinced by your omnipresence. Fear of man is evidence of pride in a hard style. The fear of you is evidence of humility. The Psalm 86 11, the psalmist asks that you would give him an undivided heart, free of worry, that he may grow in the fear of their neighbor. God, would you do that in us, in ARC, for those who are visiting God? We thank you that you oppose the crowd, but we're grateful that you give grace to the heart. Sufficient grace is what we need. For your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.